Welcome to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the BookSpeak Network, a program dedicated to independent and self-published authors. This show will examine new and unique works of literature, learn about their creators, and discuss the industry. And now your host, Tori Gates. Well, my guests today are Tom and Chris Dardick, authors of the book Sudden Onset, the first of the Seed series. We have a scientific thriller that takes readers around the world, a killer that can't be seen by the naked eye, those who try to stop it, and ethical questions. All of these from Tom and Chris Dardick. Here they are on the Brown Posey Podcast. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I was really happy to have met you when we did, because we met at Sci-Fi Valley Con up in Altoona uh, back last fall, I guess. And I was intrigued by the elevator pitch that you guys gave me, and that's, that's such a key thing. And I just remember you coming across with it, and I was like, Okay, this is not exactly what I write, but wow, I want to find out about this. So let's begin with uh, how you came together on this project, because you've indicated this took a long time. It did indeed. Uh, I remember it starting from a specific conversation, actually. Uh, Chris is a microbiologist, molecular and cellular biologist specifically, uh, with the USDA, and he was telling me about his work. Mm-hmm. And... Specifically, there was a conversation where, Chris, you were talking about the specific workings of how individual proteins function inside of a cell. And a colleague had asked, had, had, had witnessed that, a, mm-hmm. that a, an individual protein did one job and then somehow stopped that job and started doing another different job. And the question was, what's the mechanism that tells it when to switch and what to do? And to, I remember you, you telling me the story. You said, I don't know. What do you think? And she said, well, if I didn't know better, I'd say there is an intelligence that guides everything. But that's not it. So it's got to be something else. And maybe that's true. But the idea that it was ruled out that it could be this intelligence just as a, even a possibility stuck with me. And, uh, and then that against the idea of as you started finding out like the complexities of life mm-hmm. and just the, the classic um, gold watch under the mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you told me that story and maybe we'll have time to go into that. But, uh, but anyway, how complicated it is and how the theories of, of the beginnings of life are just so inadequate to explain it. And, and I thought that was interesting. I said, well, if you write this up in a paper, just a few people are going to read it. But maybe we could tell a story. And so you were amenable to that. And so that's what started it, really. How did it come in for you? in terms of this idea of let's make a book or write a book about it? How did it come? Well, I I think it came through our conversation, but I would say having worked in the scientific, you know, field for 20 years and as a kid, I was always fascinated with living things. So I loved biology. Um, I loved learning about it. And I think when you study, especially molecular biology, when you start learning about genetics and you understand how living things work, Sometimes you get so caught up in the details, but as you sort of mature as a scientist, you start to look at things from a broader perspective, and it's hard not to sit in absolute awe of living things, what they are, how they work, how they interact, and how much we don't know about them. 
And I think that's a message that often is lost in mm. our general communications about, um, you know, we talk a lot about diseases. We talk, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and everything that we, 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 we are focused on in terms of medicine all comes back to the fact that we're living beings made of cells. And the way those cells work is absolutely mind-boggling. And that's a lot of what you put across in the book. There's a lot of technical stuff. I want to ask about that in a minute. For me, reading Sudden Onset, this is one of those books, and I say this not about every book, and you can take this for what it's worth. It was one where I had to read only maybe a chapter of it at a time, and then I had to put it down and kind of process and be like, okay, what did I just read? And part of that was very compelling because I barely made it out of freshman biology in high school. And as interested as I was in science, I didn't have the aptitude for it. But at the same time, I was looking at this and thinking, wow, this is like, you know, and and you just have to sit back for a minute and then come back to it. And then I could read again. And I was like, so I think if anything... I think, if anything, it was compelling. And I hope you've gotten feedback that, re- that, that other readers see that. And, and that's the thing. What, what has the feedback been like? Well, there's, I've, I've heard that before uh, in terms of the, the denseness of the read. And, it, and it, it's not light. It's, and that's one of the central challenges of the project was how much detail. You know, how much, how much you know, as, as scientists such as Chris, it's... It drives them to learn these things, and all these details are fascinating. And but most people are not scientists. Most people do not want to go that far. But we had a, our challenge was this: we're trying to show the majesty of life. We're trying to show how amazing it really is. Mm-hmm. And part of part of that is the scope of how complex it is. Yeah. So because it's complex, to give the reader that sense requires a certain amount of detail, a certain amount of immersion in what, what is the code of life? How does it function? So, but we also wanted it to be a multi-level experience where you could just read the plot. And we did have some people who read it, they just read the plot. So it was like we heard people like had the reaction you did where they had to take breaks. We had other people that couldn't put it down. Oh, wow. And uh, one person read it in a day. I, couldn't, I could not read it in a day. <laughs> But, uh, but so, so it depends on the person, I guess, is what, it would, what I would say. If you're interested in learning about how basic biology works, this is a very fun way to do so. Mm-hmm. And that was part of what we wanted to do. The, the, but the main thing was to get across that whether or not you're looking through a, a lens of specific science, just science, what can we observe, or even a faith lens, Mm-hmm. where you're admiring the creation of God. Mm-hmm. In either case, the appropriate attitude is, should be one of humility and awe. Mm-hmm. Question for the scientist. Now, the story opens, and throughout the book, there's a number of inserts, and it's it, it reads like out of a science journal. How were you able to take your expertise and fit that in, not just into those sections, but into the book? Yeah, that was, like Tom mentioned, that was a real challenge. So the, neither one of us could have written this book alone. It That's took both true. of us. And so we had many, many long conversations 
about the science, about what we wanted to get across. So we didn't insert scientific information into the story that isn't relevant to the story. So everything that was in there, we felt the reader really needs to understand this to be able to to appreciate that awe that Tom's mentioning in terms of what living things are and what they aren't. And in the story, we sort of have two kind of parallel storylines that contrast one being um, two different versions of the origin of life, essentially. Mm -hmm. And what we try to do is bring together this view of faith versus a view of science and show that they're really not incompatible. It's just how you see the world. And isn't that it? It's like we see that that sort of, I don't know if dichotomy is the right word, but science, faith, spirituality, whatever you want to call it. But there is a merging in there. There's, there's, there's threads that fit, and they might not always be recognizable to us. I guess it's, again, a mindset, isn't it? I think so. I've been sort of a worshiper of truth. Okay. That's, that, and, and so if it's true, I don't care what lens you're looking through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It should not, I mean, part of being true is it's not going to be uh, canceled or, or, or made obsolete by another observation. Mm-hmm. I think w- what we were also sort of responding to in writing it was from an academic scientific point of view, when you hear about origins of life, when you read about science, when you watch programs on, on discovery or those sorts of things about science, they generally come from a point of view that's materialistic or atheistic. Okay. And there's writers like uh, Richard Dawkins, who's very popular, mm-hmm. um, the selfish gene, the concept of evolution didn't require a creator. And <clears throat> what we're trying to show is that those arguments are sort of they're incomplete, but if you've also read history, philosophy, you know that these are not new arguments. These have been going on forever, and even the new scientific information we have hasn't really changed the fundamental argument. And what you end up with are arguments that are sort of straw man arguments that are responding to specific texts in the Bible or interpretations of things that are you know, <clears throat> literary in nature. They're not necessarily applicable to our lives and as we all try to learn and cope and struggle with the meaning of life and who we are why we're here um, we just wanted to provide a voice that perhaps would would reach people and show well this isn't the whole story what you're seeing on tv right well i think that certainly went into different areas that I have not read before. So I think you certainly accomplished some of that. Now we've got to get into uh, the beginning. I love the, you take us straight to Antarctica to start the whole thing. And I really loved your protagonist, Dr. Wallace, Mira. Tell us about this lady. Where does she come from? (laughs) Mira was always going to be the voice of science. Mm -hmm. That was our intent from the beginning. And when I say the beginning, this book took us 10 years to write and it went through at least four, I'd say probably five different major differences, uh, different drafts and revisions. Mm -hmm. And Mira evolved over that time. And where she ended up was, we don't say it explicitly, but she's on the spectrum. She's 
and part her, so her her brain doesn't work like other people's brains, and that of course gives her some advantages and some disadvantages. The advantages uh, we we selected specifically her because we wanted her single-minded, single-focused on where did life come from. Mm -hmm. And her entire life and career is dedicated to that. So that's why she's in Antarctica. She'll go anywhere. She'll do anything to find more microbes. She's trying to flesh the tree of life out. She's trying to find out the pathway of how DNA, essentially, has proliferated over the over the you know, the many ages of that life has been around on the planet. So, so she becomes this sort of voice of science, mm-hmm. but she has a, she has a, a challenge in that because science can't answer everything. Right. So that leaves a gap in her life. And she needs sort of the, the other elements. They're not necessarily like in the back of her mind. They're not the little voices in her ear. It's some, it comes from someone else. Um, when it comes to character development, uh, people have asked me, where do I come up with mine? I say that they, sometimes they present themselves to me, and I have to figure out who they are. I see a visual of a character, and I'm like, I don't know who you are, but I'm going to find out. Or they become this amalgam of people that I know. Sometimes, as much as I've tried to keep myself out of my stories, sometimes elements of me end up, and sometimes they work. Where do your character? How do you how do you create these characters? Mira has to have come from someone or some a few folks. Like Tom mentioned, um, so we wanted her to be the voice of science, which in her case meant she had to have an extreme level of objectivity. Mm-hmm. So the I, that she was very much passionate about the truth and very much clear on what she knows and what she doesn't know, and interacting with people. She doesn't have a whole lot of patience or um, her, her filter allows her to kind of see to the core of arguments very quickly. And so when she listens to what people sh- saying, she's filtering out exactly what is evidence-based and what is supposition or opinion. And so th- the other thing we did with her was she turns out – so she's actually in the story. She's the daughter of Alfred Russell Wallace, who is a famous scientist. He was a great, con- great granddaughter. Great granddaughter. Yeah. So she's – he was a contemporary of Charles Darwin. So mm. while Darwin was back working on his grand theory of evolution, Wallace was actually in the field studying animals and living things, and he came to the same conclusion. And he was writing letters to Darwin telling him about his findings. And Darwin actually sort of – Thanks, speeded up his publication because he didn't want to get scooped. Uh, but Wallace was actually fine to sit back and let Darwin have the limelight because he felt that his contribution was not necessarily all that great. So <clears throat> we kind of took a lot of those elements and made them part of Mir's character. So she was, she kind of has that. She's does not want to be in the limelight. She's fine. Just she's super accomplished, but she doesn't take people up on their offers to, you know, head this, this type of thing or go on this interview or write this book or whatever. She's focused on what she's focused on. So that's one a- aspect. Um, another answer to that question, Tori, about how we've, how she was formed is uh, in my business as an interpersonal communications consultant, mm-hmm. one of us, I had a specific client who his presenting issue was, he's on the spectrum, brilliant guy. 
He could remember every, he was specifically, this guy worked in the area of real estate project management, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And he could remember every detail of every single regulation. Knew everything, just absolutely brilliant. So he was valuable in that way. The problem was that he couldn't read people, would would unknowingly piss people off, Mm -hmm. clients, Mm -hmm. and his employer didn't want that. So we had this great with an asterisk. And so I worked with him over a course of a couple of years and tried to move the needle. Uh, you, we moved a little bit here and there, gave him some strategies. But basically what I learned was some of the ways that he coped, some of the ways that he got in trouble, mm-hmm. so, and, and the mannerisms that he had and, and the troubles that he had. And so I learned, so, so the ways specifically the social interactions, I used him as the template for, for Mira. And I've, I have friends who have the similar spectrum issue. I think each case is a little bit that's different. That's right. That's exactly right. So that's why we call it a spectrum, right? It's, it's individualized. So we can make some broad brushstrokes, like you know, certain things, like sensory input, for instance. Yep. There's the elements, and then there's those other little bits, that the other details. And again, each person is different. But no, that's, that makes Mira, now I, it makes me understand Mira, because it's like, I felt the same thing. She's got this almost tunnel vision of this. I see this. I want this. I go for this. And one of the things I love that leads me to, you know, cut to the Utah desert. Rain is almost like not necessarily an opposite to Mira, but provides a voice. Here's a much, I think, much more practical character, and he has to be. Tell us about Rain. Well, Rain was another one that developed over years. Uh, He had the the more human element now it's it, what, at least to me what made him interesting is here's a here's a tough military guy yep right so if we if we think in terms of archetypes he's not, you're not going to think of a guy like that as a sensitive philosophical type of guy <laughs> but that's exactly what he is he wants to keep people safe yep and so he's so he's in charge he's he's as high up as you can possibly get and not be an officer in the army command sergeant major exactly right. right so he's accomplished and he's super knowledgeable he he's awesome at keeping people safe and they work in chemical uh, uh um what's the um, chemical biological radiological uh you know basically hazardous conditions keeping people safe from those threats essentially mm-hmm. is what he what his specialty is so he's obviously in charge of this this event that happens in terms of in terms of the the practical what are we doing here type type aspect of it, so that's what brings him into the story, and when he and Mira are working together, it's a there there it's you know the the what you'd think is okay it's going to be some sort of sexual thing, and we purposely left that element out and made it really just an intellectual. I never thought they would. I never. Was, I was thinking about the relationship that was building between the two of them, professional, yes, and I could. I couldn't see them being romantic. I could see them being close. I could see them being like, we get each other, we understand one another. That's another cool thing. It didn't have to be that. It, it was because and and consider the seriousness of the situation that unfolds. There's no time for that. There's no time, but but when you are in crisis, it does bond people. Yes, right. When you're when you're facing existential stuff, you and, and you're working on it together, 
boy, are you in the same tribe then, right? You're, you're, you're as tight as tight gets. So, so their relationship is, is very special in that sense. And we didn't want, like, at least in my mind, I didn't think in terms of them not being able to get together. It just, like you sensed, it wasn't the, it wasn't the priority. It wasn't the thing that they were doing. And, and both of them were sort of awkward in that way anyway. So that was one thing they kind of shared. These characters are in their mid-40s, mm-hmm. never been married, never had kids, all about their careers. Yep. Uh, sort of awkward. Rain less so than, than Mira. But, uh, you know, that's the idea there. So, Yeah, I think with our characters like Rain and, and a few others that are essentially government employees... Um, and having worked in the government for, for the USDA for a long time, one of the things that becomes quickly apparent is the stereotypes that are typically used in virtually all stories and media about what the government person is like yeah. really are obviously not the case. And m- many of the people that are uh, in some of these higher-level positions, they didn't get there because they you know, were um, uh, particularly government-like. <laughs> they right. usually are, have tremendous amounts of charisma. Um, they, they have, they're very philosophical, philosophical. They're very passionate. So we wanted to, to make some of the characters realistic in that sense of what it's really like. Yeah, my, my sister worked for, uh, I think she worked for EPA for a number of years. She worked in government for many years, and uh, she would tell stories about some of the the higher ups and she said you know that yeah they were they were very different from the way she was trained from the way that she behaved and she would tell some interesting tales about these characters and it's like how did they get that job and it's like well it's who you know but part of it also like you said uh chris it was like they had charisma. They had a way to talk. They had a way about them that helped them make friends with people and could get points across. So there's a little of it. You know, it takes all kinds, right? Sure. <laughs> well, it's it's sort of interesting. As you were talking, Chris, I was thinking about your own journey because Chris now is occupies a position where he's as high up as he can go and still be a scientist working, you know, on scientific research. Any an, another level up takes him away into the office where you're where you're you know, you're a bureaucrat. You're, yeah, essentially. And you don't want that. So you're basically as high up as you're wanting to go. Right. But the bureaucrats don't have the same, I would think wouldn't have the same passion in terms for the specific learning aspect of science themselves. They, maybe they can get it through. Okay. I've got a team of people working on that, but there's a definite difference in kind there between where you are and where anybody sort of up the chain from you might be. Sure, that's definitely the case. I mean, people that are passionate about science, love doing science, love being in the lab, they're not apt to to go beyond that position, even though that's often who they try to recruit because they're looking for people who are accomplished. But in the end, one of the most important qualities of someone at a higher level, like you mentioned, is the ability to communicate. So to to, um, uh, show that kind of passion to state things clearly and working for the government you have to be very careful what you say you have to be able to um, have a good filter so that you're not you know saying things that are really out of line or going to scare people or things like that and with the age of social media you have to be even more mindful absolutely (laughs) well there's the thing too as we move to 
you draw on your experience to bring us an agent that does, and I had to read this twice to get what happened to this guy at the beginning. It's like, it does an amazing yet terrifying thing to people. Don't want to give it all away. Um, how much of that is imagination and how much of that have you seen? <laughs> well, it's almost all imagination in terms of what, how it actually functions. Right. Uh, but, I mean, the the brand of the book, our approach right from the from the get go, was to try to keep it as close to reality as possible. That that's part of the reason it took us a long time is because we would come up with an idea, and then Chris would have to go and figure it out scientifically. How is this going to work, really? Mm-hmm. And what Sona, which is the agent you're talking about, that's the that's the foil, that's the threat in the book. Uh, what it actually is, it took almost five years. Really? To really work out what that actually was, but we came up with the concept first, yep. and then the science sort of we sort of made it fit, but it, it was tricky. And like the book, that had to have evolved with the plot, with with the characters. And what what kind of work did you do to sort of figure it out? What methods did you use? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> so, um, it, it, the in the in our concept, the um, the sona was really to represent uh, what we call abiogenesis. So Mm -hmm. this is the idea of life from nothing, the Mm -hmm. primordial soup, life emerging from a mixture of chemicals. And and we tried to dig down into what does that really mean? What, What would that look like based on what we know about life? And the idea is, like we mentioned before, life's incredibly complicated. So what you were saying is that Something very, very simple emerged that was lifelike, that was sort of the precursor for life. And so what we were trying to do is sort of show through Sona what life is not Mm -hmm. and some of the properties that life can't have. And one of them would be sort of this all-consuming, highly destructive, burns up all of the resources available to it very quickly – and so that was kind of this idea of this agent that is like the worst pathogen you could ever imagine. Wow. Well, it, and, and there's the next thing I have to ask is, we talked a little bit about this before, the morality play that goes on through Mira, through Rain, through uh, people like Dr. Kwan, people like Eleanor. And the underlying look is, as we've said, it's about human behavior because... With the talent, you have egos clashing, you have emotions, you have hubris, you have so many different things, and it didn't sound like it was too hard to just throw, to put those in because the characters all display different levels of it. And was there ever, was it at the beginning or was as you were writing, did you folks feel like, we have got something that's not just an adventure story or this story or that, We've we can talk more about life and about humanity and what are we kind of thing. Was that at the beginning or did it evolve? Tori, that was the kernel right there. What you just said, that was the starting point. The, uh, the drama, the, the, the exploration of human character and, and, and the human condition, that built over time. Uh, the antagonist, Dr. Kwan, he's sort of a, an industrialist. You can think in terms of a uh, perhaps less well-meaning of uh, um, Elon Musk type of a guy, and uh, 
And he was almost like, he, now here's a brilliant scientist, very yes. like among the smartest people in the world, but with one difference. Mm-hmm. And that was he's willing to take shortcuts to help himself or to help. Now, in his mind, he's, he's the hero of his own story. He, he thinks he's helping. Yeah. And, and he finds very quickly that Sona, the, the threat, has potentially some possible uses. Right. And who's going to use those and exploit those, right? So that he has an agenda that's different than stop it, eliminate it. You know, he, he, he's like, yes, do that. Yes, we don't want to all die. So, so good, but wait a minute here. Cause there's some good things here that we can, we can use, but because of the nature of the threat and everything else, he's got to keep that on the down low. And the only one who's really knows anything about what he might know or not know is Mira. Mm-hmm. So that puts them at odds. And without giving it away, you've set the stage for the next step in the series. Uh, can you give us an idea of where Mira and the rest are going in this next one? <laughs> or do we know yet? Well, the title of the next book is called Virgin Birth. Okay. So uh, Sudden Onset deals with the basic science of abiogenesis, as Chris was talking about, right? Life from nothing, or the origin of life. How do we explain it? What, what are the spe- No matter what lens you look through, what are the specifics of the genesis of life? That's, a no- that's something that we can't actually know. Right. We, th- we believe we can know that. Uh, the sequel, Virgin Birth, switches the sciences. We go from abiogenesis to parthenogenesis, okay. which is specifically the phenomenon that um, something can be born with only one parent, virgin birth, Okay, which does actually happen in nature. All right. And so, you know, in, in religion, we know of one famous example of it, right? So that's the initial kernel. And that's what's explored. Interesting, indeed. And when is that coming? Do you think? <laughs> well, we're 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 writing it now. We know the story for the most part, but we're in a pla- we're in that place where the characters are are telling us what they're doing too. So, our our hope is to have it ready for publication. Now, when it'll be published, I don't know, but ready for publication before the end of the year, hopefully. Mm-hmm. When it'll be published, we don't know. So, so in a, uh, a very sort of, uh, let's say, general sense, the, the first book covered creation. So it's sort of the story of creation. This one is much more apocalyptic. So we see it more as mirroring <laughs> the book of Revelation. <laughs> it goes to world scale. It goes to, it goes to politics. It goes to its center. It starts, action starts in China, and it's mainly centered in, in Africa. Okay. So it gets away from sort of a U.S.-centered kind of a, of a thing. It's not so much there so it's, it's more it's more world level well i want to ask you a little more about your writing in a moment but now i have got to ask reading your biographies and listening to you speak before we went on i have sometimes wondered when do you folks have time to write because i both of you have accomplishment and the first thing i got to ask is your tell us about where you folks grew up tell us about your upbringing because that always is at the base and shapes us? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, see, to me, I, I mean, I, I think we look at this project through through that very lens in a, in a, in a major way. Chris and I are nine years apart okay. in age. I'm nine years older than Chris, and uh, we were we were a close family. Uh, we we grew up as four boys. I'm the eldest. Chris is the youngest, and. 
we were always loving and tight and all that. Now you had with four boys, there's going to be yes. scraps and all that oh, kind of stuff. I don't but, I know that? But but <laughs> but at the end of the day, there wasn't. You know, we were we were we were all close. But nine years apart, I went to college when I was 17. So Chris was eight when I moved away out of town, and then I never lived in the same place as an adult with Chris. So my other brothers, I always had spent more time with, had more chance to to know as an adult. Chris and I never had that chance really as adults. So this project gave us the 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 really the opportunity to grow closer as adults. And and that propelled, at least I'll speak for myself, it propelled me through all this time, and it's why our, our, our partnership is, is going to gonna go for a while. Well, I can speak from experience because uh, I'm the youngest of four. The closest sibling to me is, is 11 years older oh, than wow. me. And, um, and it's like my sister, Susan, is, is the eldest in our family. She's 19 years older than I am or thereabouts. So it was very interesting because I, re- I have vague images of my siblings, and yet I remember them so incredibly well. But it was after they were all out of the house that I started to grow up. And I mean, I saw them all. And with with my brothers, yes, we had plenty of sibling rivalry, lots of it. Um, but yes, I think we were always fairly close. And as we grew older, I think it got better, and especially after our parents passed on. Mm. We suddenly began to realize we're like, hey, we're all we've got right about now. And uh, I guess the main thing was, um, yeah, I was like, like Chris, how about your perspective being nine years younger? What was that like for you? Yeah, that's interesting. So, I, yeah, my, my next oldest brother is four years older than I am. So oh, okay. obviously at those ages, we didn't spend a lot of time together, you know, with just differences in, in interests. Mm-hmm. Um, I was what I affectionately call a creek rat. So I, my, I spent all my time in the Conda Gwinnett Creek, <laughs> fishing, hunting, everything. That was what I did all summer long. Mm-hmm. Um, and growing up in the 70s and 80s, so our parents pretty much didn't know where we were most of the time. That was how life was. Probably a good thing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and that's really where my interest in biology came from. So I just love exploration and, and always loved how what, what you could find under the next rock. And uh, also, Tom noted there's a, a technology that your grandfather invented. What what is this? What was this? So that's called open chamber. It's a it's a uh, novel gun system that doesn't require a cartridge being inserted uh, longitudinally and then extracted, which is what every other gun you have to do. Right. And so it so that simplifies a um, a gun mechanism and provides a whole bunch of benefits. And my grandfather, David Dardick, spent his life applying that in different ways with different companies, and they came up with all kinds of different iterations of that, of, of that, including the fastest single-firing gun ever built wow. uh, called the HiVap. Um, now, having said that, it never really hit the marketplace. He had a company in the 50s and early 60s, Dardick Corporation, that did make handguns that were that were um, convertible to a, a rifle for consumers mm-hmm. that company didn't survive right from there's that's and every stage of this of his life had drama and different reasons of why the thing didn't work the concept is proven and 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 it works very well the execution never really came 
came to pass for lots of different reasons, lots of different stories. Matter of fact, there's a book coming out soon written by a guy by the name of Mel Carpenter on David Dardick's life and on the life of Open Chamber. Nice. Now, having said that, um, a few years ago, uh, my next brother down, his name's Scott, my dad and I, we formed a, a, a corporation. And throughout the history of Open Chamber, there were a couple of innovations that are required to make it work in, in the real world that never were, were patented. Right. And so we were able to uh, kind of set the clock back on it and start, and we got patent protection on those specific innovations, one for the ammunition, one for the way that you build the open chamber cylinder. And so we, so if somebody wants to make an open chamber gun, they pretty much have to go through open chamber systems, which is the company that we formed. And we actually are in talks with a company now uh, that is looking to to use an open chamber system for their technology. It's a perfect marriage. I hope something comes of it. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But uh, it would be a tremendous uh, innovation if we if, if, if it does come to fruition. I've learned from the history of open chamber that just because it's a good idea doesn't mean it's ever going to see the light of day. Very true. Get, getting any sort of innovation into the hands of the the military for large-scale use is a huge hill to climb, and those gates are uh, guarded by the, the large defense contractors. It's so, almost like a closed shop kind of thing. Kind. They're trying to change it. There's, there's, they're, 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 they, they know innovation is, is required, and you know, as you have pressures from, let's say, China and, and you know, other types of things, they can't afford to just... No, we just only do this kind of thing. They they really do have to open up, and that's I've seen evidence of that in in, in the past decade. Uh, so I have hope for it. So 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 we'll see. So now, I guess I'm telling you all that because perhaps the open chamber uh, technology is not a closed book. It might still be being written. Well, go ahead. One of the cool things are distinguishing things about them. If if you Dardic's not a common name, so if you Google Dardic, you'll probably see the Dardic gun. <laughs> It's um, the the ammunition's triangular; it's not round, okay. and the uh, the casings are plastic, not metal. So, very light. Still, a lot of advantages to this kind of technology. Interesting. Well, it leads me to your parents. Um, one of the things that I always remember was what my mom and dad read, the, and they both had incredibly different reading uh, styles. My sister and brothers had very different reading material, which was why I got turned on to Lord of the Rings when I was only mm. like 10 years old. Um, what did they read? What were they into? Because I think that always has a hand in where we go ourselves a little bit. Can you remember that? Yeah. Uh, our dad, he he would have been more the Robert Ludlum uh military industrial complex i mean he's he, i mean he was in the air force yep his he worked with his father uh at trowned international for many years he worked for trw which was a defense contractor now he was in the uh he actually the reason we live in harrisburg is because he was brought in as personnel manager and then actually became the general manager of the trw plant that was on cameron street and uh, he was actually he was made general manager when he was 37 years old, had 1,400 people under him. Wow. So he was the youngest person in TRW's history that had that position. So he was pretty accomplished uh, as, a, as a businessman. And so his interests have been politics, military, science, uh, the practical side of things. Mm-hmm. 
And so that was reflected in what he would read. I don't remember my mom being a big reader, although she is well-read and has a college degree and all that kind of thing. Uh, she, but if she's reading something, she's reading something that somebody recommended to her, a friend, okay. something like that. Uh, you know, we have some family friends that are, you know, their, their daughter is a pretty well-established author. She re- reads every single one of her books. And uh, I don't know, Chris, maybe you have a different perspective on what mom might look at as reading. No, I don't think she, she, she read, she did actually read a lot, but um, definitely nothing related to science fiction that I ever recall. No. So our exposure to that basically came from Star Trek and <laughs> yeah and really the science fiction aspect really wasn't even dad no <clears throat> I know for me I started reading mythologies and and I was interested in the human condition from as long as I can remember so I would read Greek myths Norse myths uh, I was into like when Chris talks about being a creek rat I was like that not so much when we lived here in Harrisburg but when we lived in uh, Mentor and in uh, Port Clinton we we lived in just, you said you had an idyllic childhood. So did I. We we had a we had Lake Erie. We had a <laughs> pond off of Lake Erie. We had a marina off of Lake Erie. We had meadows, woods, and you know this is when I was eight, nine, ten, and we could just go all, anywhere. And so we would, what's under the next rock? See all these different things. So we were into science. I remember I would get the you know the the guide, all the mammals of North America, all the reptiles of North America, all the insects of North America, and. I could tell, I can't anymore, but I could tell you every single one where they are, where, where you could find them. Are they in this area? No, they're two wow. states over, that kind of thing. So reading uh, for me was scientific, but it moved towards the human condition pretty quickly for me. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, um, I want to each ask both of you about your education a little bit now, Tom. You talked about going to Tufts, mm-hmm. and I we have to share this. Your paper to get in was about uh, so I, I so my, so they required an entrance essay and my paper was why the Who was the greatest rock band of all time. I'd been in a band in high school, a rock band. I was lead singer of a band, and around that time I'd started playing guitar, and and then later on I started playing drums and I'm a drummer now, but I didn't start playing drums till I was 25. Right. But anyway, I was passionate about music. My first love was the really the Beatles is when I for, really got nuts about music and right. I was so nuts about Beatles that that uh, if you just said you didn't like the Beatles I didn't like you that's how that's how that's that's how bad I was on that and I was so nuts about it that I, I remember I did a now this was harder back then because you didn't have digital technology I did a timed speech to Beatles music so it was a 15 minute long thing with a montage of Beatles songs that I would explain the history of Beatles and I and I did that on cassette and I gave it in all my classes when I was in 10th grade. Wow. And then the, my love for Beatles, Kinks, The Who, The Stones, The British Invasion, essentially. And so at that time, I just found The Who, The Who's energy and all that kind of stuff. So I was very enamored by them. And of course, they are. I mean, I think you can make still to this day a case that they're great. And I, you know, I could say I could argue for Led Zeppelin or The Beatles or The Stones or whatever, but, but The Who template right there. And that's how you got in. I, I mean, that's, that's, that's... Didn't hurt me, at least. <laughs> and, and what did you degree in? Well, I went um, thinking I would get an engineering degree, go after that to get an MBA somewhere, and then go into um, work at Trout International. Okay. So, and, and, and I thought I'd be an executive at Trout International. That's what I thought when I, 
when I went there. That did not work out that path. First of all, my first, I, I stayed in engineering for about a year and a half. I didn't like engineering. It was boring to me. It was, it was the classes were drudgery. Uh, and, I, you know, f- there were some projects that were okay, but generally speaking, I just dreaded it. So I'm like, what am I doing? I don't want to do this. So I couldn't just switch to, they didn't have business. It was a small liberal arts school. So yep. close as I get was economics. So I started taking economics. I didn't like that much either, but as close as I get. So that's what my degree is in. Okay. If I had it to do over, I would, I would have gone to philosophy and maybe psychology. Yeah. And it's like you were talking about uh, your consulting work and this, this fellow that you worked with and that sort of thing. And you showed me some of the presentation that you're working on. What exactly is there a way to define how you uh, run your consultancy and and who do you who's your primary audience for that? So uh, it's I, I help organizations with their people strategy. So what does that mean? That means att- attracting, selecting, retaining, and developing talent. So there are tools and tricks of the trade that help you do that because if you think about if you're hiring somebody. You go through extreme lengths to try to make sure you get that decision right. Everyone wants that decision right because a bad decision in hiring is super, super costly, mm-hmm. like crazily costly. So you got to get that right. So you might as well use all the tools at your disposal. So I have a whole basket of tools to help in that regard. So that's one thing. Um, and then I'll and, and then group functions. So you know the dynamics of groups is another thing that I that that I help with. But mostly when you're talking about communication and you're talking about uh, professional development, it really is the space between your ears. That that's, that's, the, that's the playground, right? That's, that's <laughs> where the action happens. So the, the, the work I like the most and I feel like I, I'm probably best suited for and can make the biggest difference is one-on-one with people. So, so I use psychometric tools to function as a mirror to help people see the blind spots that they can't normally see. And then my job is to sort of help them pick the, those, I call them gold nuggets, those little things that if they make this specific change, make the biggest difference the fastest. I can't change somebody's path through life. What I can do is help them manifest what they are on their path to manifest faster. All right. Now, Chris, you have a, you went to Maryland. You have a biology PhD. Tell us about your path. What? What? I mean, you've talked about your your growing up, and it seems like it was pretty natural you were going to go that way. Yeah. It, it. It. In retrospect, it seems natural, but I have to say, I had a very non traditional sort of. Uh, as a scientist, you you usually expect someone to have gone to like some you know big school or yep. <laughs> been very academically minded at a young age. I was not. So I, coming out of high school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. My brothers went to college, so I was going to college. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going to Salisbury University. I think I applied to two. That was one I, the only one I got into. Okay. <laughs> um, after two years, I, le- I left with a 2.1 GPA. Um, had met my current wife. She's a literature major, very different interests. But we um, took a couple years off, then went back to school. And when I went back to college, also at still at Salisbury University, uh, I got a chance to work in a lab. And that was a virology lab. So working on um, actually feline infectious peritonitis virus, a disease of cats, actually, and Mm -hmm. fell in love with working in a lab. And I also became very interested in life because viruses start understanding how they work, really help get at the essential nature of what it means to be alive. Mm -hmm. So 
once I knew what I wanted to do, then grades followed, became very passionate about what I was doing, ended up going to the University of Maryland uh, into a PhD program. Uh, and then I studying viruses and got into plants because it's much easier to infect and kill plants. At least it's much easier on your conscience <laughs> than killing animals. So really loved working with plants and still do to this day. All right. And there was another thing, too. Uh, working for the USDA, working on a sustainable food supply, where does this vision stand, do you think? If you can, if you can answer that question, <laughs> that's a great if question. You're allowed to answer that question. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's actually a lot to be optimistic about. So if you look at our current situation, it seems very dire. Um, we are have a growing population. We need to double our food supply by 2050, is the estimates, in order to prevent mass starvation mm -hmm. across the globe. And we have the technology to do it. Um, Farms are becoming more and more productive. Uh, there's this whole new industry of indoor farms. If you go to the grocery store, you'll see actually packages of lettuce and things like that that are grown entirely indoors. And when I say indoors, not in greenhouses. These are high-tech facilities with artificial lighting. Human hands never touch this food. It is absolutely pesticide-free, extremely high-quality, great flavor, great freshness. And I think our future is more of that. Okay. So one of the things I work on is trying to expand that technology, for example, to be able to produce fruits and things like that indoors, uh, increase the amount of fruit we can produce in a given area so that we don't have to use as much farmland and that kind of thing. Um, just two things from an observational point. Um, your work with NASA is fascinating to me. And then the other thing is, uh, what I've learned through you, is you think of like cities, right? Mm-hmm. And we think of cities being, you know, crowded with people and, and then, you know, this, the, the suburbs is sort of spread out. And, you know, with the, with the environmental concerns we have, you know, land is, is not, you know, we're worried about it, right, with, with good reason. But the, but the future, when you talk about, like, all those skyscrapers, that might be what farms are. So in the future, in 2050, like a city could still have skyscrapers, but instead of offices and apartments, those are farms. Wow. And so the people are actually out where the farms are now, and the farms are where the people are now could be a very realistic picture of how the future looks. Yeah, gl globally, we're pretty much out of new farmland. So we have very little new farmland to exploit. So um, got to think in three dimensions, so go up. <laughs> that certainly sounds like... That's something I've never thought of. That's that's really, that could be our future, isn't that something? Well, as we wrap up here, uh, tell us a little bit now. Uh, you have Immortal Works as your publisher. How did you come across them? What's the relationship like with them? So that's a pretty good story. In in a in, I'm going to call it the fourth iteration of the book. I was feeling our oats. I thought it was pretty much ready for prime time. Yep. And, and uh, I started putting query letters out there and nothing. Yep. And I ran into, it was, she was actually a, a client of mine years before, but she'd helped another friend of mine with a book. Okay. And at her book launch party, I was talking to her. And uh, she said, hey, I'll take a look at, at this book. Uh, so, so anyway... Uh, I sent her the book and I didn't hear anything. And a few months later, the friend, the mutual friend said, you know, Tessa, Tessa said, you know, she said, she said you something she never heard from you. I'm like, I didn't get anything. 
So I tra- I transferred my email at the time, and her mess her feedback got lost. So a couple months later, I saw that feedback. I loved what she said. It was awesome. So I hired her as a developmental editor. Cool. So that took about a year, mm-hmm. and and she gave us some excellent guidance. Uh, and and it, it, what I thought was ready wasn't ready. And but I got at the point after that process where it really was. And she told me about they have these pitch fests on Twitter. Yep. And so I participated in one. I, and a, a, a pitch fest essentially is you've got four op- – this one worked over a 12-hour period. You had four opportunities that you could put a log line about that describes your book. And if somebody likes your log line, that becomes an invitation to query essentially if they're an editor or, or an agent. Yep. I got one like. Well, cool, I got a like. I don't know if that was good, bad, or whatever. So I got a like. So I sent the, 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 uh, the requirements to that person. And a few weeks later said, yeah, your attachment didn't come across. Just send the whole man- manuscript. So I sent the whole manuscript. A few weeks later, I heard back. Yeah, we, we all read your manuscript. We love it. We do like to have a contract. So basically, okay. one person saw the final sc- script and gave us a contract. So you, you found crazy. The, you found the one believer. Well, yeah. And Immortal Works, we, th- we saw it as a very good match because their brand is clean. You can't have any... Uh, swear words you can't have gratuitous stuff in there and so where's the fun in that i know but <laughs> but our but our approach was in that we don't have a lot there's no swear words and and, and there wasn't in the management it's not like we had to clean it up for them that was it's our, just how you wrote it it's how we wrote it it's okay. we wanted we we thought because of the educational content tory we thought this might be a very good tool for like you know maybe a biology teacher in the 10th grade okay might want to use this so we didn't want to have language being a barrier to that. Cool. That was that. That's the main reason why. And actually, you know, good art is also a function of being restrictive, right? So the more restrictions you can put on something, the it seems like it helps your quality. So the fact that we couldn't use because if you think about these situations in the real world, there's going to be swear words, right? Oh yeah. And we're trying. And part of our brand is trying to be as realistic as possible. So there would be situations that. You're going to be dropping some, some F-bombs or whatever, but we don't do that, and you don't really need to. Well, one of our goals, too, is always to bring together uh, communities of science and faith. So we wanted to reach religious institutions. We wanted to reach academic institutions. And again, we didn't want that to be a barrier to anyone's perception of what we were saying or the book itself. Okay. Well, what is next for you, too? You've talked a little bit about Virgin Birth, which will be the sequel. You say you're working on it now. Do you have a timeline on when you think it'll be ready? Like, like I said, uh, hoping to finish Virgin Birth this year. Uh, kind of still trying to sell sudden onset. I've got a, we've got a signing, actually, uh, at the Camp Hill Barnes & Noble uh, coming up on um, March 12th. Excellent. Uh, so I, I don't have the exact time of that. Probably in the early afternoon would be my guess. Uh, but um, in terms of, I mean, that that's the main... To me, it's 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 selling sudden onset, writing the writing the sequel, and uh, we've had it in mind to build our platform. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to say I'm, this is one of my weaker spots in terms of self promoting. <laughs> it's not something I put a lot of energy into. And if you're going to be successful an author, you pretty much have to find a way to do it. Yeah, exactly that. Um, I have one last question for each of you. It's the same one. Best advice you can give to somebody who wants to write or maybe is struggling with a project, what would you tell them? 
you want to go first or want me to go first? Sure. <clears throat> Two things. One is stick with it. Um, there'll be lots of times you want to drop it. You feel like you can't go on. Sometimes you need to take a break. It's okay to take a break. Come back to it with fresh eyes. It's always a good thing. And the other thing is steal yourself to get comfortable with criticism. Criticism is extremely important. It's, it's hard sometimes where people, we take offense to when people don't like something we've done, but those, that feedback is the most important feedback you'll get. The, 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 uh, that's famously codified in the, in the uh, saying, kill your darlings, mm-hmm. right? So you write, a, you write something you love, and then you see it on the cutting room floor, and it, it really hurts. And I mean, there's so many passages. As a matter of fact, that's a difference between sudden onset and virgin birth, at least so far, is sudden onset. There's way more on the cutting floor than that, that's than, than what's in the book. And uh, I don't want to I want to minimize that if possible. Uh, but having said that, you have to remove that which is not the actual story. So if it serves the story, it's in. If it doesn't, it's not. And you you want to be explorative. You want to go where the characters take you and so forth. And then you have to be open. Okay, does that work? No, it doesn't work. Or it works here, but doesn't work there. And so I'll often talk about writing a novel as, as a huge jigsaw puzzle that the pieces move. So you have these moving pieces, and you're still trying to put the puzzle together. So it's a, it's a multidimensional puzzle. And uh, and it, it, it's a, it's a big challenge. Now, not all novels are the same. If you're t- if you're trying to tell a story that's a straightforward story, that's that removes some levels of dimensions. Uh, but if you're trying to m- sort of have something that that talks about the human condition in a in a in a in a way that rings true, no matter who you are and where you're coming from, that takes a little bit of work and time and patience and and. You know, if it's going to be valuable, it's worth it. All right. This has been fascinating for the past hour, and I've really enjoyed it. Tom and Chris Dardick are my guests today on the Brown Posey Podcast. The book is called Sudden Onset from Immortal Works. Gentlemen, thank you both for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tori. Thank you so much, Tori. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show with your host, Tori Gates. Find his works, including Searching for Roy Buchanan, Call It Love, A Moment in the Sun, and Lie from the Cafe, along with more independent authors of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.